Good morning, everyone. Uh, the Bible reading is a long one. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it'll be verse 1 to 31. If you've got the church Bible, it's on page 806. And I'll try not to read like a Frenchman sounding Indian. <laughs> chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Good morning. A couple of years ago, my boys started, one of my boys started in a soccer team uh, here in Adelaide and they joined a pre-existing team that had been together for a few years and we found it really hard to break into the group. Not him, he was fine, but us as parents standing on the sideline. All the parents would be there, but no one really reached out to you there on the sideline. There were already sort of subgroups of parents who just stuck together as they chatted. And since then, we've been a part of a few different soccer teams with different kids. And and I've got to say, most of them have felt pretty clicky. But it's not just soccer teams that feel like this, is it? Workplaces can feel like that. Clubs, sporting teams, schools for both kids and parents can feel like that. And often these cliques, they kind of form their identity by defining themselves against other cliques. I reckon you see this most clearly in schools, especially in high schools. Everyone knows which group of kids considers themselves to be the the popular kids, but for some reason, even though they're called the popular group, they never seem to be recruiting new members, and they define themselves against all the other groups and feel superior to everyone else. It happens in high schools, but there are adult ways that it happens for us, that others do exactly the same sort of thing. It's human nature, it seems, to form subgroups. It's human nature to find our status and our identity by defining ourselves against others and by feeling superior to them. And churches, we're not immune to this kind of behaviour. We're not immune, but it's completely incompatible with who we're called to be. Today we're starting a new series, as we've seen, where we'll be looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And what we see straight up in this chapter today that we're looking at is that this is a church that's lost its way in this area. They're divided. They're divided against each other and they're behaving just like everyone else does in the city, in their city. The city of Corinth, I've got a bit of a map here, you can see it there in the Mediterranean, in part of modern-day Greece, the city of Corinth, it had lots of reasons why it was a a culture of of rivalry. It had been destroyed by the Romans completely, actually, in about 146 BC, and it was only rebuilt in 44 BC as a Roman colony. What this means is that this is a city that's only about 100 years old when Paul is writing this letter to them in, in around 53 AD. So it's a city of newcomers, of Romans... Greeks, Jews, all mixed together and others. 
And it's a city that sees itself as very separate from the local bogan population around it. It's divided from them. They see themselves as superior and as a new city with new people coming in, making a new start. There's a strong culture of, of rivalry. It's full of upwardly mobile people striving for social status. It's full of people trying to prove that they're superior to everyone else. And the way that you moved up in social status, status in this culture was by how much money you had, by who you married, and it had to do with the rich and wise and sort of famous friends that you had as well. Their culture in Corinth drove them to find their status in, in these kinds of things at the same time as trying to bring down the status of their rivals. And the church in Corinth, well, it was behaving just like the rest of the city, just like the rest of, of the people around them. They were divided. And their division, it wasn't on the grounds of, of theological beliefs or things like that or, or on the grounds of anything of any real significance. Instead, they were just behaving like all of the rest of their culture around them, finding their identity in the same sorts of things as the people around them found their identity in. They've brought the rivalry of their culture into the church and it's causing all sorts of problems. And so one of the first things that Paul says to them just before he hits this issue head on, he says to followers of Jesus that we're called to be divided from the world. We're not called to behave just the same as as the rest of the world around us. We're called to something very different. Look at how Paul addresses them in verse 2. They are the church of God in Corinth. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. The words sanctified and holy, they both have the idea of being set apart, separated, divided from. Paul's saying that there's only one distinction that really matters in this world. There's only one subgroup that really matters that they're a part of. And what matters is that they belong to the people of God. Followers of Jesus are called to be divided from the rest of the world and gathered into the people of God. Now, don't misunderstand this. First of all, this division's got nothing to do with superiority. Christians are not a a subgroup because they're superior to anyone else. In fact, if anything, as we'll see in a minute, it's the opposite. And secondly, this kind of division that we're talking about doesn't mean Christians are called to be hostile or judgmental of the rest of the world. If anything, again, it's the opposite. Christians are sanctified. They're called out of the world by God to love and serve Him, to love and serve His people, and even to love and serve all people. We're not set apart to hate or to judge or to withdraw. We're called to be divided from the world in the sense of who we live for and how we live for Him. That's our difference. Our difference is we belong to Jesus. Look at how many times Paul refers to Jesus in these opening verses. I'll quickly run through them. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. 5, for in him, that's Jesus, you've been enriched in every way. 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ. 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 9, God is faithful who's called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ. And 10, I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. That's at least 10 times. I think it's 11 times in 10 verses that Paul directs their eyes to Jesus. Do you see the kind of calling that they have? They're called to be a people who belong to Jesus. God's grace has come to them in Jesus. He's enriched them in every way in Jesus. And in God's eyes, they're blameless now and forever because of Jesus. How many of these things come from themselves? None. They all come from Jesus. So why are they comparing themselves to each other and feeling superior to each other? Why are they behaving just like everyone else in the city of Corinth? Now Paul, he's recast Christ at the center of their calling. And having set their mind back on Christ, he starts to speak to this serious problem that they've got as a church. Look at verse 10 where he starts to hit it head on. He says... I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. In being called to be divided from the world into fellowship with Jesus, a big part of our calling is to be in fellowship with each other. And this is our second point. We're called to be undivided from each other. These people in Corinth, this church, they've been gifted by God. We see this in verse 5. But what we start to see is that just because someone's gifted, it doesn't mean they're using their gifts rightly. These guys, they're gifted in speech and knowledge. And so what you would expect from that kind of gifting is that they'd be united in the truth. That's where you'd expect speech and knowledge to take you. And then they'd be united in what they know about God. But instead, they're using their speech and their knowledge to divide apart. Have you ever hung out with people who just love to debate? I used to be a bit like this. I I used to live um, with a Colombian guy as a housemate when I was a uni student. And we'd argue about some point... And we'd be so into the argument that at some point we'd switch sides and we wouldn't even notice and keep arguing. Now, that was fairly harmless, young stupidity and we mostly just annoyed each other and not others and we really deserved what we got. But what these people in Corinth are doing is not harmless. They're causing real division. And really what they're attempting to do is to fix to themselves badges of honour markers of status and for them clever speech and and knowledge they're some of the badges they desire but also they're using clever speech and knowledge to kind of fix other badges of honor onto themselves as well and it doesn't seem that they're they're arguing about anything all that significant it's got less to do with what they're arguing about and more to do with trying to show themselves to be the superior ones Now, before we judge them, 
The reality is that we're prone to have our, our own kind of set of badges that we value. Now, ours might be very different to theirs, but each subculture will have its own status markers, its, its own badges of honour. In some churches, the badges of honour might have to do with things like income or line of work or education or our, our badges of honour could have to do with family, whether we're married or not, who we're married to, how wonderfully behaved and well-adjusted our children are. Or we could have badges of honour that have to do with ministry, serving up front, or being a community group leader, or a worship leader, or a spiritual kind of person. Or sometimes we could try and make a badge out of the kind of churches that we've been involved in in the past. Oh, I've got connections to Trinity that go way back. I was practically born there during one of the services one day. (laughs) If we're not seeing things with Christ at the centre, we will drift towards our own system of finding status in our own badges of honour, whatever they might be. And when we do this, it's destructive to God's church. And it's a rejection of our calling to be divided from the world in order to belong together, gathered as the people of God, Jesus' people. A big way they were trying to promote themselves as superior in Corinth was by being associated with certain leaders. Look at verse 11. Paul says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. They're name dropping. They're finding status in in the leaders that they're connected to. And in no sense here is Paul chaffed that they're saying that they follow him. Look at verse 13. He appeals again to Christ, just like he has in every single verse. And he says, is Christ divided? The church belongs to Christ. It's his gathering. Christ sees it like his own body. And a church that's trying to cut itself apart into bits, it's inconsistent with its own calling. It's like trying to cut Christ up into bits. This kind of pointless division in a church, it makes me think of an unstable chook that I was recently given. Chooker is probably the most disturbed chicken that I've ever known. Now, she was superior in so many ways. Uh, She was strong, healthy, very self-confident, even more self-confident than um, Professor Rodahara. Laid an egg every single day without fail. But when I added her in with the other four chickens, I have never seen so much division in a hen house. Now, I, I did everything right. Separated her for a couple of days and then introduced her slowly But Chuka thought that she was better than everyone else. And when two of the other chickens would prefer to spend the entire day roosted inside their their cage than come out, I realized that I needed to do something about her. So I re-gifted her like she'd been re-gifted to me. I sent her to live with some friends in the hills. And apparently the first thing that she did was attack the rooster when she got there. Now, Chuka's division wreaked havoc among the chickens. You should have heard the noise going on. But when we behave like chickens, you know, establishing our own civilized pecking order, 
with our own ideas of status, our own ideas of what counts as badges of honour, well, we wreak havoc in God's church. Paul says finding our status in, in the leaders that we're connected to is ridiculous because he says in verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? No, of course not. Paul can do nothing for them but point them to Christ. Now, do you notice what Paul's doing here? He's showing how stupid and pointless and wrong it is to put human leaders up on, on a pedestal. Trying to find status in leaders is useless because they've never done anything for you like what Christ has done for you. And Paul shows us here that, that the first job of a Christian leader is to be the first to kick out the pedestal from underneath themselves. The only help that a leader or anyone really can give you is as they point you away from themselves and point you to Christ. Paul, think about it, even though he's an apostle, he doesn't lay claim to any status and he doesn't attempt to promote himself in any way. If Paul ever pulls rank, which he hardly ever does, it's only ever to point people to Jesus and he doesn't attempt to impress people with anything from within himself. Look at verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. Now remember that they're the, the very things that they're gifted with, that they value, but Paul doesn't try to impress with those things, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul considers that if he promotes himself, then he empties the cross of its significance. He makes the cross useless. Why? Well, because the message of the cross is incompatible with the message that we're great. The message that we're great and and we're wonderful, it, it contradicts the message of the cross, which says we're not great, we're not wonderful, but we're loved by God nonetheless. Jesus didn't die for us on the cross because we're great, and wonderful and deserve it. The Corinthians, they're trying to measure their status according to a, a whole system that, that God is actually tearing down. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us being saved it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. The world measures strength and and wisdom very differently to how God measures it. But God completely undermines the world's assessment. Does God the Son dying on a cross look wise and strong? No, it looks ridiculous to our world. But God sees it so very differently. He sees it as true wisdom and true strength and He's quite happy to subvert our system and undo our pecking order and turn it completely on its head. The all-powerful, all-wise God is willing and happy to look weak and like a fool in order to save lowly people and elevate them beyond what they could ever elevate themselves. That's the cross. In God's so-called weakness, we see real strength beyond anything else we'll find in this world and in His foolishness, We see wisdom beyond anything else we'll find. What this means, though, is that we've got no reason to boast in anything in ourselves 
or in anyone else other than Christ Jesus. There really are no other badges of honour worth having. And this brings us to our last point. We're called to be undivided in finding our status in Christ. Look at verse 26. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. When they started following Jesus, not many of them were the cream of the crop in Corinth. God didn't recruit them because they're so great and and they'd make him look great if they were on his team. They weren't chosen because they were so amazing and then they weren't chosen now to be amazing by human standards. Look at the reason they were chosen in verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know when someone gets some amazing honour, like a prime minister gets elected or somebody becomes Australian of the year or something like that, what do they always say? They always seem to say, oh, I'm just so humbled. Have you noticed that, that people always say that? I always find it a bit of a weird thing to say because it's not really humbling. They're being honoured. And I think what they're trying to say is, I feel like I'm being honoured beyond what I deserve. And, And that's what they mean. But it still seems a bit strange to me to say, I'm humbled. But what we're reading here, if we read it rightly, it truly is humbling. God's general approach is to choose not the best of humanity, but the foolish, the weak, the lowly. That's who we are. Now that's truly humbling, right? In the real sense. I mean, who here has competed at the Olympics? Put your hand up if you have. Who's played as a professional AFL player? Wow, okay, learn things. I am impressed, but but that's not many of you, hardly any. Who's been a member of state parliament, federal parliament? It's shameful to admit, local parliament? No, none. Who's been an actor and actually received money for it? (laughs) Now, most of us, we aren't great by human standards. I only saw one hand up in all of those different things. God didn't choose us because we make him look good. He didn't choose us because we're such amazing people. God chooses us, the lowly, the weak, because he is good and because he's overturning a whole messed up system of values. God has lifted us up far beyond what we deserve. And so do you see what this means? How can we possibly boast in ourselves? How can we possibly try to find our status in ourselves? And how can we possibly be looking down on each other? When Jesus was willing to look weak and foolish for us, should we really be trying to make ourselves look great? Of course not. This week, some ministers got together to hear Ed Shaw speak about how we can have biblically inclusive kind of churches. Ed Shaw is a minister who has unwanted same-sex attraction, but 
who is living according to God's plans and not living according to that attraction. And he was talking about how we are all broken, not just some pockets of society. We are all broken, all of us, here at church just as much. And he challenged us ministers and he said, does your church feel like a doctor's waiting room or like a waiting room for people who are about to have a job interview? And he explained what he meant. So what are people doing when they're waiting for a job interview in the waiting room? Well, they're trying to out-psych the competition, aren't they? They're trying to look like they've got it more together. They're more suitable. They're more grown up. They're more amazing than the rest. But in a, in a doctor's waiting room, it's completely different. Or think about an emergency department waiting room. People aren't trying to impress each other there or trying to keep it together there or look like they've got it all together. If anything, they're trying to look worse than the others so that they'll get in first. <laughs> so what about us here? Which waiting room are we like? What are we doing when we're together? Are we trying to look like we've got it all together? We're the most impressive? Am I here trying to look like my marriage is great? You know, my kids are fantastic. They brush their teeth three times a day without me having to ask them even. They never fight. I'll just cross my fingers for a minute. They pray and they read the Bible off their own initiative. You know, is that what I'm trying to do when I'm, I'm here? Am I, I trying to look like my work is amazing? It, it's, it's so fulfilling. It's important and I'm good at it, and it's meaningful, and it's dignified? Or am I there at community group trying to impress you that my Bible knowledge is superior? I barely need to be at community group. I'm really just there to make sure that you guys don't get off track. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with having wisdom and knowledge or those other things, but if we wear them like a badge of honor, then we've got it all wrong. Any badge other than Jesus is taking our eyes off the only status that matters because the only status that matters is that we're called into fellowship with Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. So I want to finish by asking you two questions. What badges are you wearing right now and how do you take them off and keep them off? Now, to be honest, I find it a little bit hard to help you think through what your badges might be. And the reason for that is because ministers, we've got our own slightly unique set of badges that we need to rip off and throw away. I won't bore you with all the sordid details, but it's things like having a successful church, growing church, or being a good preacher, or having the right solid doctrine, or training under the right kind of people. Now, those are not bad things, but they are terrible things to wear as a badge. But what about you? What badges of honor do you need to take off or to be careful not to put on? Are there ways that you're viewing yourself as superior and others as inferior? Are there ways that you're comparing yourself to others here? Now, often, I think we're blind to the fact that we're even doing it. So let me ask a couple of questions that might help you identify those badges. Who do you talk to after church? Who do you sit next to at church? Who do you invite round for a meal? Are there some people that you just, you know, don't invite around or, or talk to or sit next to? Are there some people that you'll say hi to but never really anything more? Are there some people that are just not your kind of people? See, what badges is it that they're lacking 
that makes you feel that way about them because that will help you figure out what badges you're wearing that you need to get rid of. Here's another question to help you find what badges you're wearing. What do you share in prayer time in community group? In what areas of life would you just never share about? You know, do people in your community group only ever get the kind of glossy brochure version of your life, the, the Instagram version of prayer points? Because those things that, that we're unwilling to share about and, and those things that we are willing to share about, they probably point us to the kind of badges that we're inclined to wear. Here's another question to help you find what badges you're wearing. What do you think about other churches? What do you say about other churches? Where are you inclined to criticize or or feel superior to other sons and daughters of God? Whatever it is, if it's anything that makes you feel a sense of superiority compared to them, then it's a badge of honor that's not worth having. Now, I'm not saying that we should never point out serious theological problems in other churches if they're there. But even then, we must never call out other people's errors as if we're somehow superior or immune, because we're not. If our Lord and Saviour, who deserves every badge of honour, if He was willing to set them all aside to go to the cross for us, who are we to hold on to any status of our own other than our status of being called by Jesus to follow in His footsteps? Now, of course, the best way to protect ourselves from putting on wrong badges of honour is to keep the right ones in place. We've got this Terry Towling hat at home that belonged to Kathy's dad. It's from when he was young. It's, um, it's from when he used to be involved in sport and rec camps. And these are all different badges from sport and rec camps. It's in the dress-up box because, seriously, who would wear this thing? But there's absolutely no room left on it. I don't know if you can see that. It's just impossible to put another badge onto this, this hat. There's no space. Now, if we cover ourselves with the right badges and take joy in them, we're not going to be tempted to put on the wrong badges and take pride and join the wrong places. Look at verse 30. Paul writes, It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is... And this is it. This is, these are the badges that are worth having. And they're all found in Christ. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So think about those, those badges. Christ is our righteousness. He's our righteousness because we're not right in and of ourselves. We're wrong in and of ourselves. In how we live and how we think. He's our holiness. Because we're not elite in and of ourselves. We are only set apart, holy, in Him. And Christ is our redemption because we are not dignified in and of ourselves. We are enslaved. We are needing to be redeemed. We are enslaved to selfishness and a godless way of living. And the only way that we could be bought out of that slavery was by Jesus dying for us. They're the badges And all of them are about Jesus and what he's done. And so the next verse captures the only right response that we can have. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're a church that does that, that only boasts in Christ, then we won't go looking for other badges of honor. 
And it means that we'll overcome any possible division that we could have with each other. Because when I see myself as weak and foolish and lowly, but honoured by Christ, and when you see yourself as the same, then we stop trying to be honoured outside of Christ. We give up trying to honour ourselves. We give up demanding. We give up striving. We give up promoting ourselves above each other. Let me pray that God will help us see our status undivided in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, for your wisdom, true wisdom, your strength, unbelievable power. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ Jesus, you are overturning the status system of this world, that you have called us to belong to you for all eternity as your loved people, not based on merit, but based on what Christ has done for us. Lord, our status is beyond anything we could ever attain for ourselves because of Christ. Help us delight, to delight in Him, in belonging to Him. And Lord, as we're called into fellowship with Him, help us to be in fellowship with each other, not comparing ourselves, but being like Christ and set aside, setting aside our own glory and status for the sake of others. Lord, help us to truly value each other and to put aside any earthly divisions for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.